ओम नमो भगवते श्रीयारनाचलमनाय नमस्कार Today I'll start by asking some questions that were sent beforehand, and then we'll come to any questions that anyone wants to ask. So the first set of questions were asked by one person, and they were particularly with reference to the subject I talked about last time, uh, which was about um, uh, freedom of will and destiny, how the two are. Not incompatible as people in, imagine them to be. If we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, um, they are perfectly compatible. Uh, um, so the first question that this uh, lady asked is: You said our fate, earthly life, is predetermined by our karma. We have o- we only have free will in terms of how we choose to react to our predetermined fate. We cannot change it. How did our karma begin without us possessing free will? Um, uh, I think the the confusion here is the sh- sh- um, this lady who asked the question thinks that um, that we uh, we only have the freedom to react to our predetermined fate. The, our freedom of will and action, or Ichakriya Svatantra, as Bhagavan called it, gives us freedom to want whatever we want, and gives us freedom to try to achieve what we want. It doesn't give us freedom to achieve it unless it's already destined, because all we can, whatever we experience, is predetermined. It's it's our prarabdha. It's what has been allotted for us to experience in this lifetime, and it is the fruit of. Actions we've done in previous lifetimes, but not a random selection of fruit. Fruit that has been selected by Bhagavan in such a way that will be most conducive to our uh, to our um, spiritual development. So we, of course, we do react to what we are given to experience, but that is not the the only freedom we have. Whatever be our fate, we. There are things we like and things we dislike, things we desire, things we are averse to. This is not just reaction to our predetermined fate. For example, it may be the fate of one person to be very to be born in a very poor family. It may be a, the fate of another person to be born in a very rich family, but both equally desire to be rich. So it's not it's not a reaction to the what we are given to experience. It's but the, the desire precede, precedes the um, whatever we are given to experience. So the question: How did karma begin without us possessing free will? It is it is our freedom of will, but starts the whole process of karma. Bhagavan makes this very clear in the second verse of Upadesha Undia, in which he says, um, um, "Just a second. In the, what he says in the second verse of Upadesha Undia is, the fruit of action perishing, as seed causes to fall in the ocean of action. It does not give liberation." What this means is, when he says the fruit of action perishing, when when we any action we do under the 
uh, sway of our um, vasanas, that's under the sway of our will, of those actions are called agamya. Agamya are the actions that bear fruit. The fruit of those actions are what the fruit we have to experience in this lifetime are allotted by Bhagavan. As soon as we experience the fruit of an action, that fruit is is perishes. That it's like um, it's like a, a physical fruit. If you're given a um, a mango or an apple or a grape or any fruit, so long as you don't eat it, you can you've got the fruit. If you eat it, the fruit then is finished. You can't eat the same fruit twice. So uh, when we experience the fruit of any action, that action, the fruit of that action thereby comes to an end. So the fruit of action is impermanent. One of the reasons why Bhagavan says this, in fact, in Sanskrit, he, he says explicitly, palamasasvatam, that means the fruit is impermanent. Because some people believe but it karma, but by means of action or karma, we can attain liberation. But if liberation were the fruit of an action, it would be a temporary, if all fruit are temporary. So if liberation were the fruit of an action, it would only be a temporary state. So the fruit of liberation cannot be the fruit of any action. That's why he concludes the verse saying, Vidu Taral Ile. It does not give liberation. Um, so, but the important uh, sentence is he says, as seed causes to fall in the ocean of action. The seed he's referring to here are the vasanas. In fact, in his Malayalam translation of Upadeshundia, he explicitly said, vasanakara vittai. That means as seeds in the form of vasanas. So the seeds he's referring to here are vasanas. The vasanas are our inclinations, our likes, dislikes, and so on. So it perceives that causes to fall into the ocean of action. Um, so the, whatever action we, whatever agamya we do, in other words, whatever action we do uh, as per our, um, under the sway of our, uh, using our freedom of will, under the sway of our vasanas, such actions are what causes to fall in the ocean of, of karma. The nature of vasanas is vasanas have no strength of their own. Vasanas are our own inclinations. So uh, we are we are free either to be swayed by a particular vasana or not to be swayed by it. That is, we can all see this if we observe things. We have inclination to do so many things, but some things I may be inclined to do something, but I know that thing is not good either not good for me or not good for someone else. So though I may be inclined to do it, I may be inclined to say some unkind word to someone, but I don't want to hurt their feeling. So I, res I instead of uh, uh, following that inclination to say something unkind, I resist because I don't, I also have an inclination not to hurt that person's feeling. So like this, we, we have so many inclinations which pull us in different directions. It's we who choose which inclinations we follow. If when we follow any inclination, that is when we put the inclination into action, we are thereby giving strength to that inclination. So the more we, we 
follow a particular inclination, the stronger that inclination becomes. So if whenever I feel inclined to say something unkind to someone, if I say it, I'll get more and more inclination to say unkind things. There are some people who take pleasure in saying unkind things to others. So because they they yield to that um, inclination. But if I feel, no, I don't want to hurt others, I don't want to do anything to others that I wouldn't want them to do to me. I don't want to hurt others because I don't want to be hurt myself. If we, if, if instead of following the inclination to uh, say something unkind to someone, if we follow the inclination to avoid saying something unkind, that inclination to avoid that will become stronger and stronger. So it's like that with any inclination. And we all have inclinations that pull us in different directions. We may be, <clears throat> we've just eaten a tasty meal, there's more, more to, uh, available to eat, so we feel inclined to eat more, but we know if we eat more, we're going to um, make ourselves sick. So we resist the inclination. So in this way, throughout our life, we are, we are choosing between different inclinations. So the inclinations we allow ourselves to be swayed by become stronger. The inclinations we don't allow ourselves to be swayed by become weaker. So <clears throat> when we, um, this is why these seeds cause us to fall in the ocean of action. Because the more we <clears throat> follow any inclination, the stronger that inclination becomes. And so the more we're inclined we are to do the same action again and again and again. Um, so this is the nature of um, of uh, of action. All all action begins from our inclinations, our vasanas. Vasanas are what rise in us in the form of likes and dislikes, and the likes and dislikes give rise to desires, attachments, uh, aversions, hopes, fears, and so on. So the vasanas are all our likes, dislikes, desires, attachments hopes, fears, and so on in seed form. So the vasanas are what make up our will. Where the freedom lies is we are free to, to, to be swayed by a particular vasana, to allow ourselves to be swayed by a particular vasana, or not to allow ourselves to be swayed by it. That is where the freedom lies. And according to which vasanas we allow to, ourselves to be swayed by, when we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vasana, that gives rise to mental activity. And mental activity in turn gives rise to activity of speech and um, and speech and uh, body. So the karmas we do under the sway of our vasanas are what are called agamya. Those vasanas are what uh, 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 give uh, what give rise to fruit. Those fruit are a selection of the fruit of past actions are what we have been given by Bhagavan to experience in our present life as our destiny. So the destiny, what is predetermined, is the fruit of what we have done in the past by misusing our freedom of will and action. What is the correct use of our freedom of will and action? The correct use of our freedom of will is to surrender our will to uh, to Bhagavan. In other words, not to allow ourselves to be swayed by Babasanas, but to cling firmly to self-attentiveness. That, that is how we surrender ourselves. The second question she asked is, if our true and original state is a state of being, i.e. we are not creators, 
then how and why did we leave this state of being to enter into this earthly illusory state of separation in the first instance? <clears throat> Bhagavan often, when, pe when people ask Bhagavan such questions, Bhagavan gave a very nice response. He said, first see whether you have ever left the state of being. In other words, first see what you actually are. If we investigate ourselves and see what we actually are, we will see that we are always in the state of being. We have never left the state of being. Our rising as ego is, is not real. It's only an appearance. We seem to have risen as ego because we're not looking at ourselves. So long as we look at other things, so long as we enter anything other than ourselves, we seem to have risen as ego. But if we turn our attention back, to see what we actually are, we will see that we are we are nothing other than being. We have never we we have never risen or done anything at all. So, um, to ask how or why we left the state of being assumes that we've left the state of being, and we seem to have left the state of being only because we have not investigated ourselves keenly enough. So Bhagavan used to say. Asking how or why uh, we've left this state of being is like asking how or why uh, the son of a barren woman was born. There is no such thing as the son of a barren woman, because if a woman is barren, she has no children. If she has uh, a son or a daughter, she's not barren. So it, uh, the son of a barren woman is a logical impossibility, something that doesn't exist. As non-existent as the son of a barren woman is ego. But that doesn't mean that ego doesn't seem to exist. The fact that we're aware of anything other than ourselves, the fact that we're aware of ourselves as the doer of actions and the experience of the fruit of actions means we have seemingly risen as ego. The solution is to investigate what we actually are. When we see what we actually are, we will see that we have never risen as ego, never done any action, never experienced any fruit. But for, for that, we must have great love and willingness to surrender ourselves completely. Because the price to be paid for knowing what we actually are is to sur surrender everything else, surrender ego and everything known by ego. This is why Bhagavan says in verse um, 26 of Uludunapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this ego is, is giving, is giving up everything. What does that mean? Why does he say if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence? The reason is because everything, that means all phenomena, seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. So it's only when we rise as ego, as we do in waking and dream, that we become aware of the seeming existence of things other than ourself. When we do not rise as ego, as in sleep, we are not aware of anything other than ourself. So all things appear only in the view of ourself as ego. So if, if we rise as ego, everything else comes into existence or seems to exist. If we don't rise as ego, nothing else seems to exist. Um, so what Bhagavan says in the first two sentences is actually our experience. 
But what, though that is our experience, we wrongly assume that even when we don't know the existence of other things, they still exist. But according to Bhagavan, nothing exists independent of our perception of it, because other things do not actually exist. They only seem to exist, and they only seem to exist in our view. So then he, Bhagavan says, ego itself is everything. That is, what we are seeing as all this multiplicity, this vast universe, we as ego are seeing ourselves as all this. So all this is nothing but ego. And then he says, therefore, investigating what this is, is giving up everything. Investigating what this is means investigating what ego is. If we investigate ego, in other words, if we investigate what, who am I, if we investigate what we actually are, by turning our attention back to ourselves, we will thereby subside and dissolve back into our source. That is, as he explained in the previous verse, verse 25 of Uludhanapadu, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping form. Grasping form means grasping anything other than ourselves. Being aware of anything other than ourselves is what Bhagavan means by grasping form. So we rise, stand, and flourish as ego by being aware of things other than ourselves. But if we investigate ourselves, then, as Bhagavan says, if sought, it takes flight. That is, if we investigate to see what we actually are, if we seek to know the reality of ourself, we as ego will take flight. That means we will subside and dissolve back into our source. Um, so when we investigate ourselves, we will find there is no such thing as ego. Though ego now seems to exist, though we now seem to be ego, that is only because we haven't yet investigated ourselves keenly enough. If we investigate ourselves keenly enough, we will know that we have never risen as ego. In other words, we've never left this state of being. So as Bhagavan used to say, asking how or why, that, those are the wrong questions. We need to ask who or what, who or what am I? That is what we need to investigate. We, don't, we shouldn't just ask the question. We should be so keen to find out the answer to that question, but we, invest, we turn our attention within to see what we actually are. And then the next uh, question this lady asked is, what, according to the teachings, is the purpose of this earthly existence? If the only true, real option is to return to the state, to the very state of being that we left. Um, firstly, there is, if, if this were the only option, it, it wouldn't be an option. That is, an, an option means there had to be a choice of at least two things. If you have a choice of only one thing, then it's not a choice. It's not an option. You, you have to do that. So we, the option we have is either to continue rising as ego or to return to a state of being. That is the option we have. The purpose of this earthly existence is only to return to that. That is, truly speaking, this earthly existence has no um, has no purpose at all. But now we have risen as ego, and we're in this state. The only wise purpose we should have 
The wise aim we should have is to know what we actually are and be what we actually are. In other words, we, the wise option is to return to uh, is to return to the state of being by investigating who am I. The unwise option, the foolish option, is to do what we are all continuing to do, which is continuing to rise as ego. Um, so, uh, truly speaking, we can't say this state, but there's any purpose to our rising as ego. But since we've risen as ego, we should take our purpose to be to cease rising as ego and thereby return to the, the state of being that we have left. And then the next question she asks is, I know several people who had near-death experiences and read watched many accounts. Everyone reports still possessing their earthly identity, yet feeling encompassed by love and peace. According to these people's accounts, it seems that the earthly ego identity can continue after death. How can we explain people identifying as their ego pre-death individual state during an, uh, a near-death experience? They are filled with intense love and peace, but still retain individuality. Is this their astral body between world state? Um, the whole of our present life is a dream. If we have a near-death experience, that is just a continuation of this same dream. So pe people who return from near-death experiences, they report having the same identity. They still take themselves to be whatever their name is. Judith or Mary or Michael or whoever it is, we, we, if in a near-death experience, because it's a continuation of the same dream, just like when we have dreams at night, why do we have the same identity when we dream at night, but we have in the waking state? It is because those dreams we have at night are dreams within this dream. So the whole of our present life, both our waking life and the dreams that occur within this life, all are part of one dream. So those, the dreams we have at night, at night are dreams within a dream. So near-death experiences like that is another dream within a dream. One thing about near-death experiences, it does seem that the majority of people who undergo near-death experiences uh, say that they uh, say when they return, but that state was very peaceful, very pleasant. They didn't want to uh, leave it. They felt filled with love and everything. But this is by no means always the case. There are there are cases of people having near death experiences, and they don't even like to talk about those near death experiences because it was such a horrific experience for them. So if we have a near-death experience, there's no guarantee, but it is necessarily going to be very pleasant. Just like dreams we have at night. Some dreams are pleasant, some dreams are unpleasant. Just like our waking state. Some things we experience in waking state are pleasant, some things are unpleasant. However, it is often the case that people who have near-death experience says, do experience um peace and love and so on. The reason for that is because they are temporarily freed from the 
from the burden of this physical body, <coughs> they still have a subtle physical body, but it's not this gross physical body. So it, if, if, we, if we're in great pain and something is, we're given something to relieve our pain, how, we, how much uh, pleasure that relief from pain gives us, it's like that. There's, carrying the burden of this body is a, is a, it's a great burden for us. When we are free of this burden, it's relatively pleasant. But we are not completely free because we still have the same identity. If we are, find it so pleasant to be temporarily free of this of the, the physical body, the gross the physical body, how much more we, pleasant we would find it to be to be eternally free, not only of this physical body, but also of all the five sheaths, the mind, um, that that is the physical body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will that make up the five sheets. These are the five sheets. If we were free of this eternally, how pleasant it would be! We experience this every night when we fall asleep. When we fall asleep, we separate ourselves from these five sheets, and sleep is a very pleasant state. But it's only a temporary state. If we were eternally free of this state and free not only of these five sheaths, but also of the ego that is aware of these five sheaths as I, I am this body consisting of five sheaths, how pleasant that state would be. So what we need, if we were to take anything positive from this, the more we free ourselves from something, the more uh, happiness we experience. There is a um, there's a, a verse in the Tirukkural that Bhagavan often used to uh, refer to. That verse is Yadlin Yadlin Ninginan Nodal Adlin Adlin Ilan. What that means is um, from whatever from from whatever from whatever one uh, separates oneself or one gives up or one frees oneself. One is thereby free of the, one is thereby spared of the, uh, or free of the pain um, or devoid of the pain, but that thing would give one. So whatever we take on ourselves, these five sheaths or anything else, is giving us anguish. For example, even supposing supposing um, we. Uh, now we've taken these five sheaves, but we want more things. We want, uh, for instance, most of us uh, uh, want to be materially well off. So we want money. Some people, this desire for money uh, becomes extreme. So they want, however much money they want, they want more and more of it. So nowadays in the world, there are people who not only have billions of dollars, there are people few people who have hundreds of billions of dollars, but they're still not satisfied. They want more and more and more. So is those, are those hundreds of billions of dollars giving them happiness? They may think it's giving them happiness, but it is not. Because the more they have, the more they want. And that wanting is a pain. So if they want to be free of the trouble of caused by uh, either having money or not having money, we need to give up the desire for money. If we give up the desire for money, what a great relief it is, because then it doesn't matter whether we have money or we don't have money.
If we've got money, then we have to keep it. If we don't have money, then we have to get it. That's the state of most of us. If we could give up the desire, completely give up the desire for any form of material wealth, we would be free of all cares and concerns about such things. So we, uh, uh, what we need to understand from so many things in life will teach us this. Near-death experience is one of them. The more we're free of something, the more happy we are. We see this every day when we fall asleep. When we fall asleep, we give up everything, including this ego, albeit only temporarily. And sleep is such a pleasant state. Um, so the more we give up, the more we are, uh, the more we experience happiness and peace and love and joy and so on. Then the next question she asked is, this is a bit of a longer one. As you said in your talk, Bhagavan said surrendering our free will is the wisest thing to do in order to escape karma, which is the fruit of our choices while identifying as ego. Um, we don't identify as ego. Ego is the I that identifies itself as I am this body, I am this person. Um, so it, there's no other I to identify as ego. Ego is that which identifies. And what we identify as ourselves is these, or these adjuncts, this uh, body consisting of five sheaths, with the person we take ourselves to be. Um, but anyway, that, that's an aside. That's not the main point of our question. Um, if one has not attained enlightenment, they pray and meditate earnestly, but only enjoy glimpses of the wonderful state of oneness. How can they truly surrender their will to God? That is, they can say in prayers, I surrender to you, Lord. But then life continues and they have to make choices. What to eat? What job will I do? Should I have a partner or not? Should I see friends or not? Should I read this book or not? Is it enough to pray before making each choice and assume that the one you choose is God's choice? The ego is tricky after all. And if one has not overcome the ego in meditation, can one truly surrender? Is it okay? to surrender before you have achieved the lasting state of oneness by going within. Um, sorry, if it is okay to surrender before you've achieved the lasting state of oneness by going within, how do we know that the choices we make are ours or God's? Uh, or do we need to already reach this state of oneness through meditation before we can authentically surrender? People tend to revert back to uh, ego after meditation, unfortunately. This is why I wonder if surrender is only a possibility if you've already overcome ego in meditation. That is, surrender means the, the, the ultimate surrender, the complete surrender is giving up ego. So, Overcoming ego is itself surrender. That is, ceasing to rise as ego is the, is the fullness of a completion of surrender. Surrender generally begins with trying to surrender our will. Surrendering our will means giving up our likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on, and accepting whatever happens as God's will. Whatever happens to us is 
what is predetermined, what is allotted to us in our prarabdha, it has been allotted by Bhagavan, so it is Bhagavan's will, it is God's will. So whatever happens in our life is the will of God. If we are willing to accept whatever happens, whatever, whether we take, whether it seems to us to be good or bad, it's the will of God, therefore it is good. If we are willing to accept that and to have no will of our own, no likes and dislikes of our own, that is surrendering our will to God. So we can surrender our will to God by trying to give up our likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. However, so long as we rise as ego, we inevitably have likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. We cannot be entirely free of these so long as we uh, rise as ego. So as ego, we can surrender our will to a limited extent, but not completely. Inevitably, we'll be retaining some will of our own. So if we want to surrender our will completely to God, we have to surrender ourselves completely to God. Only when we surrender ourselves, meaning this ego, have we truly surrendered? Are we truly surrendering our will to God? That is why Bhagavan spoke about Atma Samapanam. Atma Samapanam means self-surrender. So surrendering our will is important. If we're not willing to surrender our will, we will not be willing to surrender ourselves. So surrender of, surrendering our will is an important part of the process of surrender, but the surrender, we, we can surrender our will fully only by surrendering ourselves. Um, and so that is what the spiritual path is all about. That is complete surrender of ourself is the goal of spiritual life. Uh, trying to surrender ourselves as much as we can is the path. And the mean, the most effective means, to, or the only effective means to surrender ourselves is by self-investigation. Because uh, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludhanapati, which I referred to earlier, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So if we truly want to surrender ourselves to God, we have to fix our attention firmly on ourselves and thereby allow ourselves to subside back into the source. That is what Bhagavan um, implies in verse... Uh, in. Um, in the 13th paragraph of Nana, the first sentence he says, being one who is firmly fixed as oneself, in other words, being one who, is, who, who remains firmly as, they, as we actually are, um, giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any other thought except thought of oneself. Thought of oneself, Atmachintana, means implies self-attentiveness alone is giving ourselves to God. What he implies here is that the only means to give ourselves completely to God is to be so keenly self-attentive that we give no rising to we give no room to the rising of other thoughts. By giving no room to the rising of other thoughts, we give no room to the rising of the first thought I, namely ego. That is so that alone is giving ourselves to God. So that's Surrender can be completed only by means of self-investigation. So this is what we are all moving towards. 
so self-surrender is itself a final goal. That is what we are all seeking. Um, to give ourselves, to get rid of this ego, to eradicate this ego, and eradication of ego and surrender of ourselves are one and the same thing, because the self we have to surrender is this ego, and we can eradicate it or surrender it only by investigating what we actually are. Regarding choices, we need not be too concerned about choices, because if we understand what Bhagavan has taught us, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Whatever is not going to happen is not going to happen. We, we are free to, and as he said in the note he wrote for his mother, endram naduvadu, enmuyachikanum naduvadu. That means what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. So we can try to make something happen. We can want something to happen. We can try to make it happen, but we cannot make it happen unless it is what is destined. So if something is not destined to happen, as much as we would like it to happen, as much as we try to make it happen, it will not happen. Uh, likewise, what is to happen, he said, he said, Nadapadu niladu. That means, uh, what is to happen will not stop in spite of our doing any amount of obstruction. So if, if something unpleasant is to be experienced by us, we can want to avoid it, we can try to avoid it, but we cannot avoid it. So whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Whatever is not going to happen is not going to happen. So our choices really are not important. We shouldn't give a lot of importance to our choices. Of course, so long as we seem to be a person in this world, we seem to be faced by so many choices. Our life is full of choices. Moment to moment, we have to make choices. But let's not give too much importance to these choices. Whatever we choose, I mean, when we, when we make choices, we should make choices that we believe to be good, moral, appropriate choices. We shouldn't choose to hurt anyone. We shouldn't choose to... Um, to do anything that will cause any type of harm to any other living being. Uh, but so long as we are avoiding, as far as possible, doing harm to others or doing harm to ourselves, what we choose really doesn't matter. And if, supposing we make a choice, but it's not in accordance with what is destined to happen, somehow or other that choice is going to be overridden. So if you want to know what God's choice is, whatever happens is God's choice. Whatever we want to happen is our choice. But so we should surrender our will to God. Whatever happens, that is his will. So that is my will. Bhagavan sings beautifully in verse um, two of our natural paticum. Ninishtam enishtam. Your will is my will. Imbadaku. That is happiness for me. So we should, our aim should be to give up our own will and to have no will other than what God wills for us. What he wills, whatever happens is what he has chosen for us. So let us, in, let us, let us accept it joyfully. But we can, we can truly accept things joyfully only to the extent to which we subside. In other words, the extent to which we cease rising as ego. And for that, we need to cling to self-attentiveness. So there's only one choice that really matters. 
Do we choose to attend to things other than ourselves, or do we choose to attend to ourselves? The wise choice to make is to attend to ourselves. The foolish choice to make is to attend to anything else. So most of the time we are making foolish choices. But Bhagavan, uh, Bhagavan um, has assured us that whatever we surrender to him, he will take care of. That is in this same paragraph, I read the sentence in which he says, being one who is firmly fixed as oneself, giving not even the slightest room to rising up any thought other than self-attentiveness, alone is giving oneself to God. Then he goes on to say, that is, we may be willing, to, unwilling to let go of, to, to cease thinking, thinking that, um, oh, I've got duties, I've got responsibilities, how can, I, how can I give up all these things? So I have to think this, I have to think that. We need not think anything, because as Bhagavan says in the next sentence, even though one places any amount, whatever amount of burden on God, that entire amount he will bear. So we, the implication of that in this context is even the burden of thinking, we can leave to God. If anything needs to be thought, let God think it for us, or let God make us think it. What well, doesn't matter? We we leave the whole burden to Him. It's we 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 no longer need to be to be concerned about these things. If, our aim should be to cling to self-attentiveness and give up all cares and concerns about everything else. That is giving the entire burden to him. And he will bear whatever amount of burden we give to him. And then he goes on to say in the third sentence, since one Parameshwara Shakti, that's one supreme ruling power, one um, uh, uh, one one uh, power of the Supreme Lord, we can say, is driving all karyas. All karyas means whatever needs to happen, whatever ought to happen, whatever needs to be done, whatever ought to be done. He will make it all happen as it's meant to happen. So when he is doing so, instead of we also yielding to it, why to be perpetually thinking, it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that. So we, what Bhagavan implies here, we need to surrender ourselves completely to God. Let us not worry about the choices we make. Let him make us make whatever choices. If, if it seems to us that we have to make a choice, okay, make a choice. And whether it's right choice or wrong choice doesn't matter because whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So we, we shouldn't be concerned about the choices we make. We should leave the whole burden to him. Um, and then he gives a, a very beautiful analogy. Though we know that the train is, is going, bearing all the burdens, why should we, who, who are traveling in that train, instead of remaining happily, leaving our small luggage placed on the train, placed in the luggage rack or wherever, suffer bearing our luggage on our head? So thinking we need to, I need to choose this, I need to choose that, what should I choose? Is it God's will or is it not God's will? Give up all such thoughts. Leave the whole burden to him. Whether it's his will or not, that's his lookout. Surrender everything to him, including ourselves. That is the path of surrender that Bhagavan has taught us. Have any questions come in yet? If there are no questions yet, 
There are actually, Michael. Okay, okay. So the first one is, uh, the first question is, what is Thwam in Tatvam Asi? And is ego individuality? Um, Thwam means you. So we are the Thwam, and we are the Tat, because Tat is Thwam. So what the meaning of the Mahavakya, Tatvamasi, Mahavakya means that great statement. There are, in the Vedas, there are four Mahavakyas. That's in each of the Vedas, there's one Mahavakya. That is a statement of Jiva Brahmaikya. Jiva Brahmaikya means the oneness of Jiva and Brahman. So if you want to analyze it in that Tatvamasi, Tvam means the Jiva, and um, uh, Tat means Brahman. But Brahman and Jiva are one. So it, that statement is saying that, that Brahman is nothing other than ourself. But obviously, ourself as Jiva seems to be something different from that. Bhagavan has made this very clear in verse, um, verse 24 of um, Upadesha Undia. What he says in verse 24 of Upadesha Undia is, um, irakum ekal isa jivagal oruporleyava undipara upadi veru upadi unuvu verundipara. What that means is, by existing nature, in other words, in our real, in our essential nature, mere being of mere existence. God and soul are one substance. So God is our own being. What, what we actually are is God. And then he says, Upadi That means only adjunct awareness is different. That is, when we, Jiva here means ego. When we rise as ego, we identify ourselves as a set of adjuncts namely uh, a body consisting of five sheaves. In other words, we take ourselves to be a person consisting of the physical body, mind, the life, mind, intellect, and will. This is a set of adjuncts that we identify as ourselves, and everything associated with this person we identify as ourselves. First we say, I am this person. Then we say, I am of such and such a nationality, I am of such and such a religion, I'm of such and such a caste, I'm of such and such a political persuasion, I'm this or that, all the, whatever we identify ourselves to be, these are all upadis. And that awareness of, that, that awareness of ourselves as I am this or I am that, that is what Bhagavan refers to as adjunct awareness. So in the next verse he says, and that's what makes us seem to be different from God. God himself doesn't have any adjuncts in his view. It's only in our view that God seems to have adjuncts. We say, oh, I'm a small little jiva, so small helpless soul in this world. I, I'm very small. I've got limited power. I've got limited, um, I've got limited um, knowledge. I've got limited um, uh, uh, will. Whereas God is all-powerful. He's all loving, all um, um, uh, um, <clears throat> so we, we, we attribute so many, um, we, we, we attribute so many um, 
adjuncts to God, but God is actually ever free of adjunct. God is just pure being. Um, so, but it's this awareness of adjuncts that make it seem to us that we are different from God. In God's view, there are no adjuncts. So in God's view, we are never anything other than himself. God never sees us as other than himself. But because we identify ourselves with adjuncts, we see ourselves as other than God, and therefore God is other than ourselves. So how to see God as he actually is? The answer is given by Bhagavan um, uh, in the next verse, verse 25. What he says in this verse is, Taneu padi vittu ovadu tan isan tanei unavadam undipara tanei olivadal undipara. What that means is, knowing oneself, leaving aside adjuncts, or knowing oneself without adjuncts, is itself knowing God, because God shines as oneself. Um, so, so long as we rise as ego, we identify ourselves as a set of adjuncts, so we seem to be separate from God. So the, the purpose of the Mahavakya is to tell us, no, though you seem to be separate from God, you are actually nothing other than God. That Tattvamasi means that you are. So you, Tat is there referring to God or Brahman. So that is what we actually are. So what makes us seem to be different from God is our adjuncts, what we now take ourselves to be. So <coughs> in order to um, uh, know God as he actually is, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. So Bhagavan says, knowing oneself without adjuncts is itself knowing God, because God shines as oneself. God is nothing other than ourself, but ourself free of adjuncts, devoid of adjuncts. So how can we know ourselves uh, uh, devoid of adjuncts? Only by turning our attention within and attending to our, uh, our being, our irikum, what he referred to in the previous verse as our irikum irke, our nature of being. So by attending to our mere being, that is to, our, to, the, that, to that fundamental awareness I am, which is our being, that is how we separate ourselves from the adjuncts and thereby see ourselves as we actually are. When we see ourselves as we actually are, we thereby see God because God is what we actually are. Um, I can't now remember what the question was. Um, have I answered it fully, Shalini? Yes, I think so. Well, it said, uh, um, what is that? Uh, sorry. Um, what is Thwam in Tatwam Asi? Yeah. And the second part is, is ego individuality? Yes, ego is individuality. Ego is, is that that is our being, I am, plus adjuncts is ego. Uh, ego minus adjuncts is the pure I am, which is God. So our individuality, our separate, we seem to have a separate existence only because we rise as ego and thereby identify ourselves as a set of adjuncts. If we see ourselves without the adjuncts, in other words, if we turn our attention within to see what we actually are, the adjuncts will drop off and then we will remain as, as that, which is what we always actually are. 
Bhagavan explains it very nicely in verse um verse 27 of Uludunapadu. That is this this verse, it's indirectly referring to this Mahavakya, Tatvamasi. Tatvamasi says you are that. So that means we are that. So what Bhagavan says in this verse is Nanudia Nanudiadu Ullanile, Nam Aduvai Ullanile. That means the state in which I exist without rising is the state in which we exist as that. That is, instead of rising as ego, if we just remain as we are, that is the state in which we are that. And then he goes on to say, without investigating the place where I rises, how to reach the annihilation of oneself in which I does not rise. What that means is investigating the place where I rises means investigating the source from which we have risen. The source from which we have risen is our own being. So uh, investigating the place where I rises means investigating ourself, investigating our own being, investigating I am. Um, when we investigate what we actually are, ego will thereby subside. Um, and will be destroyed. And that is the state in which we do not rise as I. So when he says how to reach the annihilation of oneself, he means how to achieve the eradication of ego, which is the state in which I does not rise. And then he goes on to say, without reaching, in other words, without, um, without achieving that annihilation of oneself, how to stand in the state of oneself in which one is that. So, in other words, without um, eradicating ego by investigating the source from which ego has risen, namely ourself, how to be in our real state in which we are that. So, just to summarize, uh, Tvum in Tatvamasi is ourself, but not ourself as ego, ourself as we actually are. In other words, ego minus all its adjuncts is what we actually are. That is what the Tvum is referring to in Tatvamasi. The next question is. Uh... Um, before we come to the next question, there's a question here that if we want to uh, submit questions to Michael uh, beforehand, how can we do that? Is there a preferred method? Um, I, 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 the thing is, I get so many questions. I can't, in these meetings, I can't reply to all the questions. So, um, this particular set of questions that I answered today is what someone sent to the um, sent to the um, to the the email address of the Ramana Maharshi Foundation, and it was forwarded on to me. Um, so you can do that, but uh, if you've got questions you want to ask, you can ask during the meeting. Uh, the next question is. Um... Sometimes when we read the note that Bhagwan wrote to his mother, we can feel despair and hopelessness, especially when we are going through difficult circumstances. 
because Bhagwan says that nothing is in our hands and we cannot change anything. But you have said this note can give us support and comfort in tough times. Could you please elaborate how we can find strength and support and comfort from this note? This note is not at all. This is what Bhagavan is saying in this note is whatever be the will of God, that is that is what is going to happen, whether we like it or not. We should understand what God's will is. God will God is not something other than ourselves. He's not some monster who's up in the sky giving us trouble, as some people imagine. God is our own self. God is what we actually are. So God doesn't see us as other than himself. So he loves us as himself. So whatever God wills for us is what is ultimately best for us. So knowing that everything is happening according to the will of God is a great comfort for us because however terrible things may seem to us to be, it's all according to his will. He knows what is best. He knows what is best for us and for every individual concern. So we should take great hope in this. Moreover, Bhagavan doesn't say there's nothing we can do about it. He very, very clearly gives an, uh, implies an instruction in the final sentence of the, that note. He's, he concludes the note by saying, Ahalin monamai irike nandru. That means... Therefore, being silent is good. When he says it's good, that's Bhagavan has a, is a master of understatement sometimes. When he says it is good, what he implies is that that alone is good. That is the ultimate good. Everything else that we take to be good is not really good. This alone is good. So being silent alone is good. What does being silent mean? Being silent means surrendering ourselves, not rising as ego. Because so long as we rise as ego, we will have a will of our own. And we'll be trying to, um, trying to experience things that are not, we're not destined to experience. And we'll be trying to avoid things that we are destined to experience. And we thereby we create unnecessary um, trouble for ourselves here. And we create fruit for us to experience in future. So there's... <clears throat> the only wise option is to surrender ourselves completely. That is what Bhagavan implies by saying, therefore, being silent is good. Being silent doesn't mean we have to sit like a stone without thinking any thought, without saying any word, without doing any action. What it means is we have to cease rising as ego. If we cease rising as ego, then whatever action our mind, speech, or body need to do in accordance with destiny, they will be made to do, as he says in the first sentence of that note. That means, that is, prarabdha is what is destined for us to experience. In order for us to experience what we're destined to experience, certain actions are necessary on our part. For example, if it's our destiny to um, eat a tasty meal, that meal may be placed in front of us, but we have to put the food in our mouth. We have to chew it. We have to. So, certain actions of mind, speech, and body are necessary in order for us to experience the prarabdha. Those act, all those actions, God will make us do. That if those actions are not prarabdha, people say, oh, how do I know if this action is prarabdha or not? 
what Bhagavan says there, in accordance with prarabdha, prarabdha prakaram, that means in accordance with prarabdha, Adakarnavan means he who is for that meaning God or Guru. So Bhagavan will make us do whatever we need to do in order for the prarabdha to unfold. So we don't have to worry about actions. We All we need to be concerned about is not rising as ego. If we don't rise as ego, he will make our mind, speech and body do whatever actions they're meant to do. So this is the, if we understand this note correctly, this is the greatest hope. And Bhagavan is clearly putting some responsibility on us there. When he says, therefore, being silent is good, he means we have to be silent. Being silent means not rising as ego, because the rising of ego is the first noise and the starting of all other noise. So all noise, metaphorically speaking, begins from a rising of ego. So not rising as ego alone is being silent. People people hear but Bhagavan taught that uh, uh, silence is the highest teaching and everything. But what does Bhagavan mean by silence? He doesn't mean just not talking. He doesn't mean just not thinking. When we when we're asleep, we don't talk, we don't think. But that is not the silence Bhagavan is talking about. Never rising as ego. That is the true silence, because though we don't rise as ego in sleep, while we're sleeping, we don't rise as ego, but that sleep is disturbed by our rising as ego. So we need to, uh, what we need to achieve is not merely a temporary dissolution of ego, manolea, but permanent dissolution of ego, manonasa. And that is truly the state of being silent. So that is achieved by self-investigation and self-surrender. And another thing about that note, what Bhagavan is also telling us there, we don't have to worry. We don't, most of us are so concerned about our life. What, how, what am I going to, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to earn enough to feed my family? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? We have so many cares and concerns. And what to do if I get ill? What to do if my family gets ill? We've got so many cares and concerns. Bhagavan is, if we understand this note correctly, we need not have any cares and concerns because everything is happening according to his will. So let's leave everything to him. Let us just subside and be, be silent as he advises us to be. Be silent means being as we actually are without ever rising as ego. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. So that, that what Bhagavan said there shouldn't make us feel help, helpless. Bhagavan is pointing out to us what we can really do to help ourselves. Being silent, not rising as ego. And if that is our aim, his grace is always helping us. Uh, the next one is... The path of Ramana 1 and 2 by Sadhu Om, compared with Plato. In the path of Ramana part 1, it is striking to me how much, uh, how much following the light to the mirror and then to the sun resembles the cave analogy in Plato's Republic. 
Further, in the path of Brahmana part two, it is equally striking how much the gradual refinement of the object of devotion resembles the ladder of love in Plato's symposium. I would love to hear uh, what Michael has to say about this, both about Sadhu Om's acquaintance with Plato and about how Ramana's realization fits together with Plato's. I can read it myself if you wish. Um, uh, uh, as far as Sadhu Om's acquaintance with Plato is concerned, um, he may possibly have heard the name Plato, that's all. He wouldn't have known anything about uh, Plato's philosophy. Secondly, though the analogies may be seem to be somewhat similar, what Plato is saying in his analogy of the cave is quite different to what, uh, what to Bhagavan's teachings, which is what Sadhuam is illustrating by means of the analogy of uh, reflected light. Um, so though the analogies are similar, but what the what they are meant to illustrate is quite different. I myself don't know a lot about Plato's um, Plato's philosophy. I've got some vague idea, but I've never really read uh, read it seriously. Um, but when we come to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, all the that is. Very innumerable types, numerous types of philosophy in the world. But no two philosophers ever will completely agree on anything. They may agree on something, but other things they'll disagree on. So uh, philosophy is um, we when there's so many ty different types of philosophy, we need to find out what philosophy is really useful. If we understand Bhagavan's teachings, we will understand philosophy is useful to the extent to which it points our attention back at ourselves. Because what we are all seeking, all living beings, are, what all living beings are seeking, as Bhagavan says in the first paragraph of Nana, we are all seeking to be happy and free of misery. Um, so. And in order, since happiness is our own real nature, we can experience that happiness only by knowing ourselves. As Bhagavan says at the end of that first sentence, in order to experience that happiness, which is one's own nature, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. For that, the, the awareness investigation, who am I, is the principal means. So all of Bhagavan's teachings are pointing our attention back at ourselves. Most other philosophies are pointing our attention at so many other things, not at ourselves. So if we understand and are convinced by Bhagavan's teachings, we will understand that the only philosophy is useful only to the extent it directs our attention back to ourselves. Because only by directing our attention back to ourselves will we as ego subside and will we thereby remain as we always actually are, which is Satchitananda, infinite being, awareness, happiness. So only those philosophy, no philosophy is useful unless it's directing our attention back towards ourself. Is Plato's philosophy directing our attention back towards ourself? Not as far as I'm aware. Um, so I Though there may be some superficial similarities, I think we shouldn't, um, unless we can show that there's 
deeper similarities. Unless we can show that Plato is pointing in the same direction as Bhagavan, in other words, turning, trying to turn our attention back to ourselves, we shouldn't attach any importance to the superficial similarities. Even if Plato is pointing in the same direction as Bhagavan, in other words, back towards ourselves, we don't actually need Plato because no, no philosopher has ever dinned into us as emphatically and as repeatedly as Bhagavan has done, but all we need to do is to attend to ourselves. All of Bhagavan's teachings, whatever Bhagavan is teaching us, it's all directing us back to the need to turn our attention within and thereby to subside and dissolve back into our source. What I said may be unfair to Plato because I don't know much about Plato, so I've got nothing against Plato, but I rather doubt whether he's... Um, I've never heard anyone saying that Plato's aim is to turn our attention back towards ourselves. Uh, the next question is, uh, would Michael recommend finding or sitting with someone who abides in the self? And if so, how should one go about finding somebody who is authentic? Trying to find out about the state of others, as Bhagavan said, it's anatma vichara. Sometimes in Bhagavan's time, people would, there would be discussion in Bhagavan's presence whether certain such a person is a jnani or not. Um, and when people ask Bhagavan, Bhagavan, is this person a jnani? Bhagavan sometimes used to reply, there is only one jnani, you are that, know yourself. Being concerned about others is directing our attention away from ourselves towards others. There is absolutely no use in that. The, what the path Bhagavan has taught us is turning within and to know what we actually are. So we, we need not be concerned about whether others are abiding in themselves or not. It's actually, it's meaningless because so long as we see others, we are not seeing, but what we have to abide in is our own real nature. In our own real nature, there are no others. So, so long as we see others, we have left our own real nature. That's why Bhagavan, I, earlier I read that um, verse 27 of Uludunapdu, which Bhagavan says, um, the state in which I rise, I, I exist without rising, is the state in which we are that. And without investigating the source from which I rise, how can we um, attain that state in which we do not rise? So our sole aim should be turning within. If, if we attach importance to being in the presence of some person who is abiding in the self, our attention is going outwards. So that's that's a complete going in completely the opposite direction to the direction which Bhagavan is directing us in. If you want someone who's abiding in the self, nobody can doubt Bhagavan is well. Bhagavan is the self in which we are seeking to abide. So. But did Bhagavan in his lifetime ever say, come to me, you have to sit in my presence and then only you can get this self-realization? No, he never said that. He said, he, he never said, come to me. He said, go to you. 
even when even when people um Bhagavan, that is but one of the things Bhagavan revealed is the purpose of the outward form of guru is to turn our attention within to where the real form of guru resides as our own being there's an incident that illustrates that there was a devotee of Bhagavan called Janaki Mata she lived in Tanjore she would often she often came to Bhagavan one day when she was visiting Bhagavan she saw him returning from the gosala the cow shed with just one or two attendants and no one else was around so she thought to herself this is a very nice opportunity so she approached Bhagavan she prostrated placed placing her forehead on his feet and she held his ankles so Bhagavan stopped and looked down at her with a smile and asked her what are you doing she said I'm holding the feet of my guru Bhagavan said this body is perishable these feet are perishable if you take this body to be your guru if you take these feet to be the feet of your guru you will be disappointed because one day this body is going to go the real feet of guru is what is shining in you as I hold on to those feet they alone will save you so Bhagavan was always turning our attention back towards ourselves so Bhagavan would never say come to me sit in my presence then you can then only you can get self-realization so there, there are people nowadays who say like that but you have to be in the presence of a of a the physical presence of a jnani in order to attain self-realization the jnani as Bhagavan made it clear the jnani is not physical though he appears in a physical form though Bhagavan appears to be physical it is that physical form is not what he actually is he what he actually is is that awareness that is ever shining in our heart as our own being i am so that is what we need to sit with we need to sit with ourselves we need to be ourselves be as you actually are So the next question, I understand that according to Vedanta, Prarabdha is allotted at birth and therefore what we are destined to experience will happen whether we want it or not. However, do we have free will regarding our responses to these experiences as seems to be the case? The, the English term free will is a, is a rather nebulous term it's not a very clear term Bhagavan was much more precise in his terminology Bhagavan spoke about two things he talk, spoke about Ichwa Swatantra and Kriya Swatantra Swatantra means freedom or independence so Ichwa Swatantra means freedom of will Kriya Swatantra means freedom of action we we our will is free, is perfectly free in the sense that there are no external constraints on us no one can make us want what we do not want but limitation on our on our freedom of will is that our will consists of vasanas and those vasanas are the shea vasanas are pulling us in many different directions so our will seems to be limited 
by itself that is because we've got because we want this and we want that and they're pulling us in two different directions therefore our will seems to be limited but where the real freedom of will lies as i explained earlier vasanas are just inclinations so we are always free to follow an inclination or not to follow it so whether we follow any inclination or not we have the freedom that that that's entirely in our hands whether we choose to follow this inclination or that inclination is entirely in our hands and as bhagavan says in the 10th paragraph vishaya vasanas arise which come from time immemorial arising in countless numbers like ocean waves so every movement of our mind is the is is uh, is, is driven by by vasanas so vasanas are pulling us in so many different directions um uh sorry i'm just trying to remember the question now so but the what freedom of will means is we are free to be to to choose which vasanas we allow ourselves to be swayed by whether this vasana or that vasana or that vasana or that vasana so as Bhagavan made clear, the, the wise choice is to use our is to use our freedom of will to turn our attention back within. In other words, to, we should we should allow ourselves to be swayed only by satvasana, the inclination just to be as we are. If instead of allowing ourselves to be swayed by that inclination, if we sway, allow ourselves to be swayed by any other inclination that will lead to activity of the mind and activity of mind leads to activity of the speech and activity of the body so all the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are agamya um sorry can you repeat the question again because uh, while clarifying certain things i i've forgotten the original question uh yes i'll, I'll yeah. ask you uh, directly I understand that according to Vedanta, mm. uh, prarabdha is allotted at birth, yep. and therefore what we are destined to experience will happen whether we want it to or not. Yep. However, do we have free will regarding our response to these experiences, as seems to be the case? Um, I think what I really meant there is do we um, are we free to act in either one way or another uh, in response to um, this um, prarabdha, uh, which is uh, uh, destined to happen? Yes, yes, we 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 are free. That is, when Bhagavan wrote in the note to his mother, "What will never happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort or trying." The fact that he says in spite of any amount of effort or trying means we do have the freedom. We not only have the freedom to experience, to want to experience what we're not destined to experience, we also have the freedom to try to experience it. So there are so many things we may want to experience, and we, we often try to experience things, but we cannot experience anything that we are not destined to experience. And likewise, we he, in the next sentence, he says, whatever is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. That implies that we are 
free to want to not experience what is destined to happen. We are free to try to not experience it. That's what he means by obstructing it. We, 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 we're trying to avoid experiencing that. We have that freedom. That is why Bhagavan said we have freedom of will and freedom of action, but no freedom of experience. That is what we are destined to experience, that we have to experience. Right. So but, we are free to act in uh, one way or another. Yes, yes. Of course, our freedom of action is limited because when we, the, the instruments of action are mind, speech, and body, these are limited instruments. I can have a desire to fly in the sky like a bird, but I can't do so because I don't have a, I, the body I've got is, is heavy. I mean, I, I would need machines to, to lift me up. I can't fly as a bird unaided. So we, we can want all sorts of things. Um, we can want anything we want to want, but obviously there are limitations on what we can do. But within certain limitations, yes, we do have freedom of action. Okay. Thank if we you. didn't have that freedom of action, we wouldn't, if we didn't have freedom of both will and freedom of action, freedom of action would be meaningless without freedom of will, because freedom of action implies we are free to do what we want to do. If we weren't free to want what we want, then it would be meaningless. So often Bhagavan spoke about, though he sometimes talked to, individually about Ichya Swatantra and Kriya Swatantra. He often spoke about them together. He often talked about Ichya Kriya Swatantra, that is freedom of will and action. Um, if, we didn't, if we didn't have that freedom of will and action, we, couldn't, we wouldn't be doing any agamya. Agamya is the action that bears fruit. So what, mm -hmm. and the fact that we do have such freedom is very, very clear in Nana, Bhagavan says in the eighth paragraph, he's, when he's talking about, he begins the eighth paragraph by saying, there's no, to make the mind cease, there's no adequate means other than vichara. And then he goes on to say, it may to cease or subside by other means, it will remain for a while as if it had ceased, but it will start again, it will rise again. And he, then he says, even by pranayama, the mind will the mind will uh, cease, but so long as the breath is uh, subsided, the mind will also be subsided. When the breath comes out, the mind will also come out and wander under the sway of its vasanas. When he said the mind will wander under the sway of its vasanas, he's implying that the mind is acting in accordance with its will, because the vasanas are our inclinations, they're the seeds that constitute our will. So we obviously, the mind acts according to the vasanas. Um, in the 19th paragraph, when he's talking about there are not two minds, a good mind and a bad mind, only vasanas are of two kinds. Subhavasanas and asubhavasanas. That's agreeable vasanas and disagreeable vasanas. And then he said, when the mind is under the sway of uh, of uh, 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 subhavasanas, good vasanas, we call it a good mind. When it's under the sway of bad vasanas, we call it a bad mind. That implies not only that the actions of the mind are also are 
we act, but the mind acts in accordance with vasanas, but the body and speech act in accordance with vasanas. Because how do we judge a person saying this person is a good person, that person's a bad person by their behavior? And their behavior is they, they why they behave in a good way or in a bad way it depends whether they're being swayed by subhavasanas or subhavasanas. So Bhagavan has very, very clearly indicated that we do act by mind, speech, and body under the sway of our vasanas. But however we act, we cannot change what we are destined to experience. What we are destined to experience is we're going to experience. So freedom of will and action determines what we want to experience and what we try to experience. Prarabdha determines what we are to experience. So there's no clash between them. That's why Bhagavan says in the 19, in verse 19 of Upadeshu, of Uludunapadu, the dispute as to which prevails, fate or will, is only for those who do not know the root of fate and will. The root of fate and will is ego. When we rise as ego, we act under the sway of our vasanas. And when we act under the sway of our vasanas, we therefore we have to experience the fruit of what we do under the sway of our vasanas. So, but why he says that that dispute is only for such people, because if we understand the way this works, we will understand there are two different jurisdictions. The, the, what we are to experience comes under the jurisdiction of prarabdha. Our will cannot interfere with that. What we want to experience, what we try to experience, comes under the uh, jurisdiction of our will. Prarabdha cannot in, uh, interfere with that. Prarabdha cannot stop us wanting to... Um, it may be my destiny to be sick all my life. But that doesn't stop me wanting to be healthy. Uh, so they're two entirely different uh, jurisdictions. So, I mean, uh, wanting one thing or another is um, superfluous, really, um, because what is destined to happen will happen, Yes, but whether we want, want it or not. Exactly, exactly. But the problem is, when we want something and try for it, we thereby create more fruit. So we, the whole cycle of karma keeps on. That's what Bhagavan says. Those seeds, the vasanas, are what causes to fall in the great ocean of action. Mm. So that's why we are advised to give up all, to surrender our will, to have no likes or dislikes or desires or attachments at all. Mm. We can try to do so, but only to a limited extent. So long as we rise as ego, though we can reduce the strength of our likes and dislikes, we inevitably have likes and dislikes to, to a greater or lesser extent. So in order to surrender our will completely, we need to surrender ourselves, namely ego, the one who had, whose will it is. That is why the ultimate aim is complete self-surrender. And we can achieve that self-surrender only by turning our attention within and thereby subsiding back into the heart. So what Bhagavan has taught us, if we understand it correctly, it's extremely simple, extremely clear. Yeah. I see that's a, that, that's a bit clearer now, Michael. Thank you. Right, right. 
that is, Bill Bhagavan's teachings are very simple. Because our minds are full of so many ideas, we often fail to recognize the, the clarity and simplicity of what Bhagavan is saying. So it takes time. By The more we try to follow the path that Bhagavan has shown us, the more what he is teaching us will become clear to us. So what we all have to do, if we really want to understand Bhagavan's teaching, we need to put it into practice because the more we turn our attention within, the more our mind is thereby purified and clarified. And the more our mind is clarified, the more clearly we'll be able to understand the, the simplicity of what Bhagavan is saying. Thank you, Michael. Right. Uh, the next question. So it says, uh, I'm following from recent discussions on solipsism. If there is only one ego or jiva, and our mission is to annihilate the ego, does that mean that nobody has annihilated the ego? Who is to annihilate ego? That, that is, ego has to surrender itself, and then it will be swallowed by Bhagavan. Um, so, the, the fact that we are still experiencing this means we as ego have not yet surrendered ourselves completely. So we have to keep on uh, practicing self-investigation and self-surrender until we finally become willing to surrender ourselves completely. Then we will be swallowed by Bhagavan, and that will be the end of the story. Bhagavan means what we actually are, the light of pure awareness that is ever shining in our heart as our own being. Uh, the next question is, it's a brief follow-up question. Um, and this is that, in regard to Bhagwan's note to his mother, would you please point out the verses and paragraphs from his original works where Bhagwan has taught us the way to just silently be in, in this way? Um, yes. I, earlier I referred to um, verse 27 of Uludunapadu, in which he says, the state in which we do not rise as I is the state in which we are that. And then he goes on to say, without investigating the source from which I has risen, how to achieve the annihilation of oneself in which I does not rise. So the state in which I does not rise is silence. We can achieve that silence only by investigating what we actually are. I mean, I'm sure there, there because Bhagavan's teachings are all pointing in the same direction, we could infer the same from so many other teachings of Bhagavan, but that is one very, very clear place. Unless we take silent, being silent to mean anything other than not rising as ego, which if we, so long as we rise as ego, we are not being silent because ego is, the nature of ego is going outwards and being active. So we, we, we can truly be silent only by not rising as ego. And to not rise as ego, we need to investigate ourselves, as Bhagavan makes very clear in that verse 27. 
The next question is, how can you explain an ego born for, oh, sorry, how can you explain an ego which is born with two prarabdhas simultaneously based on the story we're discussing uh, during Bhagwan's bodily life, which is a 10-year-old boy who traveled in a train with his parents, uh, got down at a station and took his parents to his former wife's place where the where the wife's husband died two years ago. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, I, I understand what the question is. That is, time is not objective. Time is in our own mind. So if you, if you view it objectively, yes, this boy was, um, this, this, this person who died two years ago was born as this boy eight years before he died. It, it makes no sense. But it, that is, we, we need to understand each dream has its own time scale. S sometimes, for example, at night, we, we may dream a dream, and so many events may happen in that dream. But when we wake up, we find, oh, I was asleep only for five minutes. But in that five minutes, I dreamt uh, half a lifetime of dream. I mean, we don't usually dream half a lifetime, but we, we sometimes dream that that is the time scale in each individual, each dream is different to the time scale in other dreams. So each life that we live is a dream. So the, though from a, um, from an external viewer's point of view, it may seem there's an overlap in the lifetime of that previous person, the, the husband of those ladies, and this boy, there's, there's an eight-year overlap, seemingly, in the experience of the jiva, but of the ego, but first experience itself as that person. Once that, one, only after that dream had come to an end did this dream start. So it's only seemingly that there's an overlap. It, there seems to be an overlap because we take the external world to be real. But if we understand the external world is just a dream, there's no confusion at all. Sometimes we, in our dream, um, we may dream, but we uh, have dreams from earlier stages of our life, times when we were um, much younger. But does that mean that there, there, there's some overlap? No, because the dream is, is, is of, each dream is its own watertight compartment. So the time and space within that dream is, is only within that dream. We can't, we can't, we, 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 we can't map the, the time of one dream onto the time of another dream. I hope that makes sense. I, to me, it's very clear, but I don't know whether I've expressed it clearly. This you is Sarah. Yeah. Is my answer not, clear to you or not? Not yet, uh, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is now, I am in my long dream. I am hearing the story. Yes. So for that point of view, it is not uh, applicable for our prarabdha and whatever I learned in the karma. So, because the same individual as an ego um, appear to be 
simultaneously present in two bodies. When Is you say simultaneous, it's only from when you're taking the world to be objectively real, then you can say, yes, it's simultaneous. But the world is not objectively real. The world is just a dream. So the previous life was one dream. This is another dream. There, there's no... There's, now we are living in the 21st century. If, we, if this body dies, and we 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 will start a, a dream of another life. There's nothing that uh, that prevents us having dreaming the next dream. We, we could be in the sixteenth um, century or something. There's a, all this time is not real. Time is just a mental fabrication. Time is a part of the dream. So dreams, the the time occurs within the dream. Though it seems to us the dream occurs within the time. So every lifetime, the time occurs within the lifetime, not the lifetime within time. So what will happen, what should have happened if the husband self-realized in the previous birth and this still the boy is still living without the realization? <laughs> that, if they, when there's self-realization, ego is annihilated, then there's no more birth. So but the, already the, the, the boy born. Hmm? But already the boy born. No, if, if, if the ego is annihilated, there's no birth, no death, nothing. Yeah, you, that is... You, you're, giving, you're giving reality to a dream. which It's unreal. Moreover, that is, we need to understand when we think about Bhagavan's teaching, the whole aim of Bhagavan's teaching is turning our attention back to ourselves. So, we, out of curiosity, we can think about these things. How is this possible? But we should, if we think about it through the, from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, it's very clear how it's possible because they're two completely separate dreams. The dream, the, the time in the previous dream and the time in this dream are two different times. So just because um, uh, from an object, I mean, an outward looking point of view, there seems to be overlap. The, the fault lies in looking outwards. So long as we look outwards, we do not see things as they actually are. If we want to see things as we, they actually are, we need to look within. If we look within, we will see that there's no birth, no death, no ego, no world, nothing, no time, no space, nothing. There is just pure being. Satchidan, anadi, ananta, akanda, satchidananda, as Bhagavan says in verse 28 of Upadesha India. Beginningless, infinite, unbroken, indivisible, Satchidananda. That is all that is real. Everything else is just a mental fabrication. Okay, thank you, Michael. I will think about that when I listen to your recording. <laughs> or more useful than thinking about that, think about yourself. In other words, turn Who your attention I? back to yourself. Yes. Thank you. We are not here to solve all the problems, I mean, to solve all the, um, the paradoxes of Maya. These are 
The, all paradoxes occur within Maya. Maya itself is paradoxical because what doesn't, Maya means what doesn't exist, but it seems to exist. So, of course, it's paradoxical. Ego is the greatest paradox of all. Because what is ego is chit jada granti. Chit means pure awareness, jada means not aware. The two are conflated together as if they're one. So, the, Maya is inherently self contradictory. If we want to be to go beyond all these seeming paradoxes, we need to subside back into the heart, and there there'll be there's no paradoxes because what exists there is one only without a second, namely ourself. So there's no scope for any paradoxes. Yeah, I have categorized this as a, an Atma Vichara questions, but anyway, <laughs> that's it is very it, it is an in, Asking about anything other than ourselves is an is an atma vichara. Turning our yes. attention back towards ourselves, keeping our mind firmly fixed in ourselves alone is atma vichara. Bhagavan says so clearly in Nana, sada kalamum manate atma vilvetir vidikutan atma vichara mendrupaya. The name atma vichara is only for always keeping the mind on oneself. So being self-attentive to the exclusion of all other things, that alone is self, self atma vichara. Everything else is anatma vichara. For those who don't know what it means, anatma vichara means investigating what is not ourself. Atma vichara means investigating what we actually are. And we can investigate what we actually are only by fixing our, keeping our mind firmly fixed on ourselves. Thank you. Right. Okay. Next one is. Mm -hmm. We have destined experiences and also some experiences that are destined to not happen, according to Prarabdha. However, are there some experiences that we can experience by Agamya that are not in the jurisdiction of Prarabdha? For example, we may have the option to eat or not eat an extra piece of chocolate. You, we have no option. If we, if we... If it is not your destiny to experience that extra piece of chocolate, you will, however much you want to, however much you try to, you will not be able to eat it. If it is your destiny, however much you try to avoid it, it, it will, you will not be able to avoid it. Um, but what we actions we do in accordance with our will cannot change what we are to experience. That Bhagavan makes so clear in that note to his mother, what is never to happen will not happen. What is to happen will happen, in spite of any amount of effort we may make. However, but uh, depending on our agamya and the actions we choose, that is a different experience. Like, for example, I might get a paycheck uh, for $10,000. I can decide not to work or to work, but those are two different experiences. You... You, whatever you decide, what you are destined to experience, that alone you will experience. What you are not destined to experience, you will not experience. That is, when it, we say experience, that is what you are given to experience. 
people say, no, no, even wanting something is an experience. I experience wanting it. So does that not mean my whatever I want is also predetermined? No. It's what is given to us to experience that is predetermined. Okay, and you, but I also read a post about unhappiness and being about um, uh, that you that somebody was like having a choice between what looking at their phone or not looking at their phone. You said that they have that they have the choice to whether or not to experience watching that phone or not or not watching the phone. What I I don't know what I said there, but the the choice we have if we want to avoid experiencing prarabdha, we have to turn our attention back to ourselves. Because Bhagavan said the um, prarabdha affects only the outward-facing uh, mind. It can never prevent us turning within. So we will experience the prarabdha to the extent to which we look outwards. If we look within, then we, we, we are not the experiencer of prarabdha. Okay. But in order to look within, we need to have all-consuming love to surrender ourselves completely. But the thing with this, um, the thing with this law of karma, that what we need to understand is the basic principles. If we start citing, but can it not be this way? Can it not be? If we start, uh, if we overthink it, we'll get ourselves into a confusion. This is what happens with most people. All we need to understand is we, but we have freedom of will and we have freedom of action. But, under the sway of our vasanas, we do agamya. The fruit of that agamya we have to experience is prarabdha. But prarabdha is, is, is selected and allotted by Bhagavan, and that we cannot avoid what is we are destined to experience. Understand the basic principles and don't think more about it, because the more we, firstly, thinking about it, Bhagavan didn't teach us this to make us think more about it. He taught us this to make us understand that we need not concern ourselves with these things. We need not concern ourselves with whatever is going to happen in our life because it's already predetermined. We need not concern ourselves whether we should act like this or act like that. Well, the only thing we should do is cling to self-attentiveness, unmindful of everything else. So what he taught us is to make us understand we need not be concerned about anything except attending to ourselves and thereby surrendering ourselves completely. If we go on and on thinking about it, is this possible? Is that possible? Is it, what does this mean? We, we are just create, creating unnecessary thoughts. And, and thoughts lead to confusion. If we want clarity, we need to look within. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Right. Uh, the next question is, um, Bhagwan is said to have tailored his teachings to each seeker's level of spiritual maturity. David Godman has said these teachings were meant as practical guidance, not a philosophy or doctrine. However, sometimes it feels like we run the risk of these teachings becoming doctrinal in these talks. When Ramana says everything is predetermined, you have said we should consider this in the context of Ramana's entire message. But if the teachings weren't ever supposed to be doctrinal, 
how can we establish definitive context? I, um, that is what Bhagavan is teaching us. Bhagavan is teaching us a philosophy, but the philosophy he's teaching us has one purpose and one purpose alone to direct our attention back to ourselves. If we understand that, what Bhagavan, the principles Bhagavan has taught us are very, very important because they are all pointing our attention back at ourselves. So there's no, there's no, we, we, that, that is, Bhagavan didn't teach these principles for no reason. He taught the principles for a very good reason. And all the, the, the ultimate aim of whatever he taught us is to make us understand the need for us to turn within and be unconcerned about anything else whatsoever. It's only if we allow our mind to go outwards that we get into all this, is this doctrinal or uh, what, does it, uh, what does all this mean? What does it matter? What matters is that we show, follow the path that Bhagavan has shown us. The path that Bhagavan has shown us is turning within. Everything has taught, he has taught us is to help us turn within. So why it is useful to understand clearly what he has taught us is because that helps us to turn within, that encourages us to turn within. Bhagavan is very, but when Bhagavan gives teaching, for instance, what he said in Nana, what he said in Ulidunapli, what he said in uh, Upadeshundi, and so many other works, he's very, very clear and definite. It's not, oh, you can take it this way, you can take it that way. No, Bhagavan is very clear and unambiguous. And that's all for a purpose, because that if, if we understand these things clearly, if we are firmly convinced of these things, that will help us to a great extent to turn within. If we think, oh, well, it may be like that, or we can take it like this, or if we have a wishy-washy understanding, we'll have a wishy-washy practice. We need clear, Bhagavan has given us clear, definite principles. If we understand these principles and apply them in practice, then we will be very firm and steadfast in our practice. To really follow Bhagavan's path requires great singleness of mind, one-pointedness. There's one thing we need to, to know, that is, who am I? And to know who am I, we need to turn our attention within. So, for example, about Prarabdha, what he, everything he taught us about the law of karma is only to make us understand that we do not, need not concern ourselves with, our ex, with the external life. The life that we are living, that's already predetermined. So we need not even think about it. All we need to do is to turn within. If we are unsure about this, or if we think, no, maybe it doesn't really matter whether we think this or that, it doesn't, it, Bhagavan after all didn't mean to be doctrinal. So if we think like that, then we, we, are, we are failing to get the benefit of what Bhagavan is very, very clearly teaching us. For example, in that note he wrote to his mother, he said, what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. What is to happen will, sorry, what is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacle. Iduvei tinnam, that means this is certain. So he's very, very emphatic. 
So how can we say, oh, does it, uh, Bhagavan is not doctrinal? Yes, that is. If, if you call this doctrinal, call it anything you like. Bhagavan is very clear and very specific about what he's teaching us. For those who are not ready to accept his deeper teachings, sometimes he has to, he has to tailor his teaching to suit their level of understanding. But if we want to really follow what he's teaching, what he's teaching is very, very clear, very, very unambiguous. And very consistent. That is what he's teaching in Ulladunabdi, what he's teaching in Nana, what he taught his mother in that note, all these things, they're very, very consistent. So if we go to Bhagavan's core teachings, there's no, no ambiguity at all. Of course, when people are not ready to accept that core teaching, Bhagavan has to modify it, dilute it according to what uh, to their capacity for understanding. But what so not everything that Bhagavan said is his core teaching because he obviously has to he, he has to answer people's needs, but in the, his core text, that, that is his own original writings, he's very, very clear and very, very definite and unambiguous. And it's all, if we understand all his original writings correctly, they're all logically consistent. There's no contradiction. Are there any more questions, Shalini? Uh, further to the earlier question about free will and destiny, does it mean that even the effort we put into turning within is dependent upon our prarabdha, that we will not even try to do self-inquiry if we're not destined to do it that's the first one okay can i answer that because that's a very important one sure absolutely not but as i said earlier bhagavan said prarabdha affects only the outward turn mind it can never affect it can never prevent us turning our mind within prarabdha is the fruit of our past karmas so it is what we are to experience when we look outwards it, so it cannot prevent us looking within. Looking within has nothing to do with prarabdha. It's all to do with our will. Do we, are we willing to look within? Do we want to look within? Do we want to know what we actually are? That is why Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti is that love, that willingness to surrender ourselves completely. And without that willingness to surrender ourselves completely, we will not be willing to look within or will not be willing to look sufficiently deep within because to the extent to which we look within, we are thereby surrendering ourselves. We are thereby subsiding. As Bhagavan says in Anma Bidde, uh, knowing ourselves is extremely easy. But, and he says of all the paths, this path, meaning this path of self-investigation is is, is is the easiest. But to us, it seems difficult. Why does it seem difficult when Bhagavan says it is easy? The truth is, it is easy. But it seems difficult to us because of our unwillingness to surrender ourselves. Because turning within, 
to the extent to which we turn within, ego subsides. And when ego subsides, everything subsides. So unless we are willing to surrender ourselves and to give up everything, we will not be willing to, to investigate what we actually are. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Ulu therefore, investigating what this is, meaning investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. So are we willing to give up everything? So it's all to do with our willingness. So it has everything to do with will and nothing to do with prarabdha. Prarabdha is the fruit of actions that we've done by misusing our will. Knowing ourselves is the is is the result of using our will correctly to turn within and see what we actually are. I hope that is a clear answer. Um. You can ask one more question, uh, uh, um, because the other question on free will and destiny is simply that um, if everything happens according to Parabdha, how can miracles be explained? Uh, we read of miracles in all religions and lives of all sages, and is Parabdha um, tampered with, or is it just an illusion? If you experience a miracle, that is also your Parabdha, very simple. Uh, and this is the last question. Um, um, so before the question, uh, there's an inquiry that where can I find the latest edition of the Path of Sri Ramana by Sadhu Om? And where can I find the essay version of Nanyar? The, the latest edition of Path of Sri Ramana is available on Amazon in all countries except in, uh, I think, Brazil. No, no, I mean, sorry. Either Brazil or Mexico, Mexico, I think, and or maybe it's Brazil and India. For some reason, uh, Amazon print-on-demand books are not available in most two countries, but the Kindle version is available in most two countries. And later, an Indian edition of the Path of Sri Ramana will be published later this year. But if you're not living in India, or if you're able to order from Amazon from uh, any other a branch of in Amazon, other than the Indian one, you can um, you can order it from Amazon. Um, oh, and the, the essay version of Nana is available on my website. That is, uh, if you go to happinessofbeing.com and in the sidebar under translations, there's um, Nana, who am I? That is the, uh, that has the Tamil text of the essay version plus my uh, translation of it. So the last question, which is from the same person, is, is the attainment of total self-surrender a gradual process, or is it a moment before which we are not abiding in the self and after which we, are completely, we completely abide in it? It is a process in the sense that we are, we are gradually letting go. But the final complete surrender happens in a moment because either we are ego or we are not ego. So when we're giving up ego, it's like uh, death. Either you're alive or you're dead. You, there's no, um, 
it, it may seem that dying is a slow process, but actually, so long as you're dying, you're still alive. You have to be alive in order to die. Once you, but the actual moment of death is death. So, um, the, in the case of ego, once e how ego is annihilated, e ego is a false awareness of ourself. Ego is a awareness of ourself as something other than what we actually are. As ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am this person, and consequently, we're aware of so many other things. In, since ego is a false awareness of ourself, it can be destroyed only by correct awareness of ourself. In other words, awareness of ourself as we actually are. So we as ego need to turn our attention within in order to see what we actually are. What we actually are is pure awareness, which means awareness, but is not aware of anything other than itself. So when we attend to ourselves so keenly, that we cease to be aware of anything else, we will thereby be aware of ourselves as pure awareness. As soon as we are aware of ourselves as pure awareness, which is what we actually are, we will thereby cease to be ego. So the annihilation of ego happens in a not even a split second. That is an um, infinitesimally small moment of time. Up till then, all the all the investigation and the surrender prior to that is leading up to that. But the surrender becomes complete only when ego is annihilated. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. I think uh, that is uh, very, very clear, Michael. And I think... Uh... We should uh, perhaps end now. It's um, I think yep. you've been for quite a while, Michael. You could right. take a break as well. So we'll end with Bhagwan's mantra. And thank you, Michael, very much as always uh, for a wonderful session and to everyone for attending. Um, mm. Oh, Namo Bhagwati. Shri Ramanai Oh Namo Bhagavate Shri Ramanai Oh Namo Bhagavate Shri Ramanai Oh 